The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org slash give. A reading from Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 3a. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning. I add my welcome to Frank's. Uh, My name is Chad Middlebrooks. I'm one of the other pastors here on staff, and it is a joy to be worshiping together with you this morning as we begin Advent season. And this, during this Advent season, we're going to be studying the book of Hebrews, primarily the first chapter of the book of Hebrews. But children, the word Advent simply means coming, uh, which is why the church throughout the ages has called this season of Christmas Advent to make much of the first coming of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see the series description in your bulletin, Advent is all about waiting and longing for redemption. And the book of Hebrews is about confirming that Jesus is the one in whom we've been waiting for. This child, Jesus, is the one who fulfills the longings built up through the prophets and the temple and the priesthood and the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Jesus is the new, final, and superior high priest and royal son. He's superior than even the angels. And all the longings of the covenant people of God find their fulfillment in this person of Jesus Christ. And though he has come, still yet, we wait. We wait his return as he will completely consummate the glory of his unshakable and eternal kingdom on earth. But until then, we wait with eyes of faith fixed upon Jesus, the one who's the author and perfecter of our faith. And so with that understanding in mind, let's pray and let's ask the Lord to speak to us this morning that we might understand his word, this living and active word. Let's pray together. Father, your word tells us that the laws of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Lord, we want these words of King David to be true of our heart's desire. And so would you come, would you open our ears this morning that we might hear from the one who speaks, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is risen and reigning at the right hand of the Father. And may the one who preaches not be a distraction, for we want to hear Christ and him alone. So Holy Spirit, tend to your word now as we look into it, to mind the depths of your truths that we might be changed by it. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, many of us have read or heard or maybe even watched the movie of C.S. Lewis's The Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. And you'll remember it begins with Narnia in a perpetual state of winter. And this is because of the evil work of the white witch that's infected Narnia and all that's within it. And so when Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy, the main characters, they enter into Narnia and they meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, two other main characters in the story, they discover it's always been winter in Narnia and never Christmas. Kids, how awful does that sound? 
Well, the story begins to progress and something happens that changes things, or rather someone happens that changes things. The great lion Aslan, the Christ figure, enters Narnia himself. And when he does, the icy tundra of Narnia begins to thaw and melt and warm once again. In other words, all of Narnia changes for the better once Aslan comes on the scene and nothing is ever the same again. In this passage, we have a wonderful picture of a similar event happening. Instead of this happening in a fictional story, it's happening and unfolding in reality. The author of creation, God himself, enters into this dark, broken, sin-filled world that is dead and in its own icy winter. And what happens? Everything changes. His coming in the person and work of Jesus Christ marks the coming of Christmas. It unfreezes and awakens the hearts of those who come to him. And furthermore, it ushers all creation into the final act of the grand story of redemption. For us to know this invisible God, he has to make himself known to us. But as Tim Chester rightly says, he says, our problem is not only our creatureliness, but our corruption in sin. Our minds are darkened in sin, and if we are to know anything of God, God must renew our capacity to know him and reveal himself graciously to us. What we're gonna see this morning is that revelation is as much an act of grace as redemption. And God's revelation of himself is at the heart of Advent anticipation and Christmas celebration. Our God speaks in his son and Jesus is everything that God ever wants to say to us. In this passage, we're gonna learn three things related to God's active and intimate engagement as he speaks into his creation. First, we're gonna see that God is a God who speaks. But secondly, we'll see that God authoritatively speaks in his son, the identity of his living word. And then finally, we'll see that God clearly speaks in his son, the message of his living word. Now the writer of Hebrew, Hebrews is writing to Jewish Christians who are being tempted and pressured to go back to the ways under the law of Moses in the Old Testament. They didn't, weren't quite so impressed with Jesus. They thought it was gonna be different than who he is and the way he came. And so he opens this letter contrasting the old covenant under Moses with the new covenant in Christ. And he writes these words, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And quite simply, but quite very profoundly, we need to see the very first thing here as this writer opens this letter is that God is a God who speaks. And I think we often take that for granted because our God is a God who doesn't hide himself, he doesn't remain silent, and he doesn't manipulate his people like all the other idols and pagan gods. Psalm 115 says of the pagan gods, their idols are silver and gold, their works of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They do not make a sound in their throats. You will never hear a spoken word from an idol of this world. Baal, Molech, Asherahs or any other idols closer to home like money or career or sex or power. Our God communicates as he desires to connect intimately with his people. And God has spoken long ago, the writer says. 
At the beginning of Genesis, Moses reveals that God brought the world into existence by merely speaking. And throughout the Old Testament, God spoke by prophets, meaning his typical way of communicating with his people was by inspiring human spokesmen as go-betweens, people like Abraham and Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and other prophets. And God's usual way was to call a prophet and then inspire that prophet to speak or to write everything that he wanted to say to his people. And when the fathers, when the people heard this message from the prophet, they knew they were listening to the words of God. There were also other ways that God spoke long ago. He spoke through visions and dreams and commands and law and prophecy and signs and wonders and other ways. But while God spoke through prophets in many ways at various times, his message that he spoke was rather limited or incomplete. There was always a future lean to it. That one day God would speak more clearly, more definitively, more completely. But in between the old covenant and the new covenant, there was 400 years of silence where God didn't speak. And the people waited And they waited generation after generation for God to speak. And he did. But this time, not through a go-between prophet, not through a burning bush or a talking donkey. He spoke in a singular way through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who took on flesh and came to dwell among his people. And the phrase last days here refers to the age ushered in at Jesus' advent, his first coming. Why last? Because there is no other act of redemption left to accomplish before the end and his return. All of history turns on Jesus' incarnation, his humiliation, and his exaltation. And like the last days of a war after the decisive battle has been fought, everyone knows who the victor is. The mortal blow has been delivered to the enemy by Jesus Christ through the cross and his resurrection. It's just a matter of time until the war is finally over. And the fullness of victory is experienced when Jesus comes back again. See, when God no longer spoke to his people through the prophets, but he came close, he in a sense gave the best Christmas present of all time, giving the gift of his presence in his son, Jesus. This is the great Christmas announcement. The birth, the entrance, the angels, the star, the magi, the crowded in, the baby in a manger. It's all held in this statement. He is spoken by his son. In the son, we see God fully revealed. But do we see that as a speaking God, God is not an idea to be thought about. He is a person who came down on our level that we might listen to, understand, enjoy, and obey him. If God was ready to communicate himself in the old covenant through the prophets, how much more is he ready to communicate himself sending his son? In Christ, we have something far more superior than anything the prophets ever communicated to his people. And so this Advent season, may we be both astounded and comforted that because God speaks, we might know him, love him, live in joyful obedience to the one who created us for relationship with himself. Have you ever found yourself feeling frustrated over the circumstances of your life? And maybe out of 
a moment of frustration or even anger at God, you said, God, if you would just speak, it sure would make my life a lot easier. If you would stop being silent with me. God is telling us this morning, I'm not hiding who I am, nor am I hiding my purposes for you. The question we have to ask ourselves is, have we really heard the word of God revealed in the person and teaching of Jesus? Are we listening? Perhaps in those moments of the longings of our soul and the confusion and frustration in our minds, it's not that we've exhausted hearing the word of God and listening to Jesus. It's not that we need him to speak something new or something different to us. We need to listen. When it feels like God is silent, we must keep looking to where he has already said fully in his son and in his living word that he's entrusted to us. We have a God who speaks to us, who is drawn near to us. But next we see that God authoritatively speaks in his son the identity of his living word. The writer of Hebrews reveals who this one is who's speaking to us and why we should listen to him. Notice what he writes about Jesus, the son. He says, he is appointed the heir of all things. Jesus is the beloved son of God, the appointed heir. Children, an heir is just simply someone who receives the property and possessions and, and wealth of another person when they die, usually a family member. And so Jesus is the rightful owner of all that is the father's. And Psalm 2 says as much when the psalmist writes these words, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. Since Jesus is the heir of all things, this means that if we unite ourselves to him by faith, then we are fellow heirs with all that is Christ, as Paul says in Romans chapter eight. And the implication of Jesus being the heir of all things means that we can actually trust what he says to us. Since he possesses and controls all things, it means he will make good on his promises, every one that he's made to his people. And so when Jesus says, blessed are those who are meek, for they shall inherit the earth, we can trust that that's true because he owns the earth. And when he says, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ, we can trust this promise because of his authority and his rule over creation. And when he tells us there's a future day coming, a day when there shall be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, we can trust that that's true and we can take him at his word because he's over even life and death and everything that brings us pain and suffering in this life. This is good news, brothers and sisters, living in a fallen and broken world. Are you trusting that Jesus, who is good and gracious and always does the Father's will, that he knows what is best for you? And so you will relinquish control over your life to submit to him. The writer goes on to say that he's not only the heir of all things, he's the creator of all things. And John reiterates this in the first opening lines of his gospel as he writes, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So this means that Jesus existed before he took on flesh and came to this earth to carry out the rescue mission that the father had given to him. On Christmas Day, back in 1968, three astronauts were aboard Apollo 8. 
And they were circling the dark side of the moon. They were heading back to earth, to home. And suddenly over the horizon of the moon rose this white and blue earth with the radiant reflection of the sun in the midst of the void and the blackness of space. And these three astronauts were just overwhelmed with this sight of beauty that they were witnessing as they were heading back home. And these sophisticated men who were very trained in technology and science in that moment didn't utter Einstein's name nor any other famous poet or musician. No, the only thing they could capture this awe-inspiring, jaw-dropping awe was the words, in the beginning, God created. The only concept worthy enough to describe this unspeakable beauty, in the beginning, God created. Jesus with the Father speaking creation into existence. Jesus is the heir of all things in a sense because he's the one who created all things. He's the son eternally begotten of the father. He's the appointed heir in another sense because he laid down his life on the cross to redeem a people for himself, annihilating sin, Satan, and death and everything that the destruction that they have caused. Knowing that Jesus is the creator gives us even greater confidence and assurance of God's goodness and his carrying out of his promises. Because this means there's nowhere we can go on this earth and no situation that will befall us in our lives that he is not over the authority over all things. This is far superior than anything the prophets ever spoke in the Old Testament or anything this world can offer us. He's the heir of all things, the creator of all things, and furthermore, the writer goes on to explain that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds, he maintains all things everything down to the smallest detail of your life and my life he controls this Jesus upholds the universe not just by his word but by the word of his power complete authority strength and might in his word it's the same word that called all of creation into existence the same word that brought Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him to life again and that same word that goes out in his gospel to bring sinners to faith and union with Christ. And therefore, as one pastor puts it, God is calling us to hear his final and decisive word and to meditate on it, to study it, to memorize it, to linger over it and to soak in it until it saturates us to the center of our being. God has spoken authoritatively through his son the identity of his living word. Finally, we see that God clearly speaks in his son the message of this living word. So after explaining who is speaking to us and why we should listen, now the writer of Hebrews reveals what Jesus is actually saying to us. The beginning of verse three, the writer writes, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the unique image of God's divine glory. He is the eternally begotten son without beginning, without end, as Hebrews 7 says. Jesus is the message. All the other prophets, priests, and kings were pointing to this final and greater prophet. Who Jesus is, what he has said, what he's accomplished through living a perfect life, dying a sinner's death, and raising on the third day. This is God's word to us. This is what you and I are to center our lives upon by faith. 
this person who came 2,000 years ago, God in the flesh. See, every human being that's ever walked the earth is made in the likeness and the image of God, but the writer of Hebrews is telling us that Jesus is different from every other human being because he's the exact imprint, the perfect character of God's nature. Now that language is referring to a stamp that was used to, to stamp on printing money. And kings would stamp their image so that it would go out into their kingdom so that everyone would know who is the rightful king in their territory. And so in the Old Testament, you have representations of what Jesus is supposed to be like. Types and shadows of the one who is to come. King David, King Solomon, they were types and shadows, imperfect images, but pointing to what Jesus is to be like. And remember when Moses descended from the realm of the presence of God from Sinai with the tablets in hand as he was coming down to the people of Israel. Moses didn't know that he had got a sunburn by being in the presence of the glory of God. And his countenance was transformed. And when Israel saw Moses in his countenance, it, what it did is it authenticated Moses as a prophet because they knew that he had been in the presence of God. But when Israel saw Moses' face, they were afraid. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden after they'd eaten of the forbidden fruit. Why? Because Moses bears the glory of the Father and that glory exposes sin. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3 that Moses' glory, as bright and as brilliant as it was, it was a fading glory. He veiled his face as it was fading. Moses was only a type of the fullness of God's glory. How much more glory does the Son of God possess? He is the one in whom that glory is maximal, eternal. And as God says in Isaiah 42, I am the Lord God, I will share my glory with no one. And if the Son is the radiance and the fullness of that glory, it means that he is God, the Son. You know, you hear people outside of the church, but even inside the church that will say things like, you know, God the Father in the Old Testament, he just seems angry and serious all the time and just judging and always bringing down condemnation. But you know, Jesus, he's, he's loving, he's kind, he's gentle, he's uh, embracing and he's approachable. I like Jesus, but the God of the Old Testament, I just, I don't think I can deal with. But the writer of Hebrews is telling us if we wanna know what God the Father is like, Look at the son, because God the Father is approachable. He is humble and gentle and loving and steadfast in love. And I love how Nancy Guthrie puts it in her book, Hoping for Something Better. She says, Jesus is God's full personality and power and purpose in a person, in the person. He is a precise copy, a perfect imprint, an exact reproduction. He is no less than God himself in human form. In Christ, we have the fullness and finality of redemption and revelation. And as my seminary professor John Frame says it, Christ is both the revelator and the redeemer. Nothing can be added to his redemptive work nor to his revelation. And so if you're here this morning and you have not bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, maybe you're rejecting the message of the gospel because of the messenger. Maybe you're thinking, well, that's just something my parents believe and it just seems too narrow-minded and archaic for me to take on. Or maybe you're rejecting the message 
because of messengers like your coworkers or your neighbor or your classmates and you see that they profess one thing but they live contradictorily or even self-righteously in another way and you don't want anything to do with that. But don't reject Jesus because of the messenger and don't reject him to find hope and satisfaction elsewhere because it will not be found in anything in this world. Only in Christ, the creator, the sustainer, the savior of sinners, will you hear these words, these words of life to free your soul that is in bondage to sin and every other excuse that you're using to keep him at bay. Because you have to answer this question. What will you do with your guilt and your shame over sin when you die? Because it has to be paid. Only in Christ, he alone can liberate your soul to experience true joy now and everlasting salvation in the life to come. Maybe you're here and you are united to Christ. You believe by faith. You believe that Jesus' words are relevant to anything and everything that you're walking through right now, this day, and everything you'll walk through in the future. God has decisively spoken in and through his beloved son. There's nothing new to say. But rest assured, he will continue to speak through what he has already said. Because even when the writer of Hebrews penned these words, Jesus was not on the earth, but God continued to speak through the Spirit to this audience and 2,000 years later continues to speak by his Spirit to us through this living and active word. Pastor Tim Keller, speaking of how Christ is the fulfillment of all of Scripture, says this. It's rather lengthy, but hang in there with me. Jesus is the true and better Adam who has passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all that is comfortable and familiar and go out into the void, not knowing where he was going to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserved so that we like Jacob only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so that the angel of death will pass over us. Jesus is the true temple the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. And as we will sing upon our lips in just a few moments, Jesus is fair, pure, and shines brighter and purer than all the angels that heaven can boast. This God has come close to us, entering this world 2,000 years ago as a baby in a manger so that we might draw near to him and know him intimately. Will you let the already of God's redemptive victory, which came at the cross, so that the Father now smiles upon you as his son or as his daughter, will you let that strengthen your faith for the not yet and all the twists and turns that this life will bring in the coming days? Because as we worship a God who speaks and has clearly spoken through his son, we can trust that with anticipation and expectation as we come to this word, he still speaks and still brings change in the lives of his people. And we can also expect to see the fruit 
of God's voice, both in our lives individually, but also corporately as a body of Christ here in this church. Because where God's word is deeply implanted in his people's hearts, there's powerful new life that emerges and fruit that is born. For the God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When Aslan came on the scene, the long, cold Narnian winters were finally over and gave way to Christmas joy. And so as they say in Narnia, wrong will be made right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. And when he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. God himself has come in his son. All is being made new. And if we're willing to listen, we will hear his voice calling us to rest and to delight ourselves in him and him alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being a God who speaks and delights to reveal yourself to your children through your word. Father, help us to believe, help us to rest, knowing that to see Jesus is to see everything we need to understand and grasp about you, our heavenly Father. And Father, we trust that as the author and perfecter of our faith, you will complete the work that you have begun. Thank you for your son, the radiance of the Father's glory that you sent to come, live the life we couldn't live and die the death we deserve to die. May we hide ourselves in him. We pray this in Christ's matchless name, amen.